Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this earth, not in this world. On Saturday 21st of April, Matt Fell taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Matt gave us an overview of the books of Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Matt is the Director for Relational Missions Year Team Programme and a, writer, a regular speaker and writer on theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. So I, I'm not really sure who's crazier, you or me. You guys for uh, coming out of the sun to get into... Uh, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy for a morning, or me for getting out of bed at 4.30 in the morning with a six-week-old baby in the house to come up here. So, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I probably would have been awake. Um, It's a joy to be here. Um, I've come all the way up from Canterbury, and this is a bit of a novelty for me because um, I'm from Leicestershire originally, so down in Canterbury, they all think I'm I'm, I'm northern. Um, And I've played off that for like a good 12 years now. Um, but up here, you know, I'm, I'm the southerner, um, so please be gentle and kind to me, um, but it's, it's a joy to, to hear uh, your wonderful accents, um, and uh, just, if you want to just pepper your conversation by saying, just saying bath and grass and castle correctly, it will, it will be like, you know, it will minister to my soul, uh, so you can bless me in that way. Um, Let me tell you some things about myself. As I said, I grew up in Leicester. I I moved down to Canterbury for university. Um, I wasn't from a Christian family. Uh, In my family, there's kind of everything but Christian. So Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, New Age folk, Yorkshire atheists, which are like a a category in and of themselves, I tend to think. Um, And... uh, So I went off to university, um, did the student thing for a couple of years, and then in my third year became a Christian, um, and uh, that was a dramatic ringtone. Oh, bless her, she's like... um, Yeah, Uh, so became a Christian in my third year at university, still feel deeply perplexed, just by the grace of God. It kind of felt like the the Lord Jesus grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and and brought me into his kingdom. Um, and uh, yeah, so since then I've had various different jobs and now, as Andy said, I lead uh, a course which we call ID. It always has to have some kind of fancy abbreviation, doesn't it? ID, which is, uh, I think you guys have FPers in your church? Is there any FPers in the room right now? No, no, okay. Um, well, uh, so I, I run uh, the equivalent course for relational mission, uh, which is lots of fun. Um, I'm married to a lady called Laura. Uh, we've got two kids. The youngest is uh, six weeks old. Um, and he's lots of joy, but he could really do with going to sleep at some point. Uh, and, and burping. It takes like an hour to burp him. I, I don't know why I told you that. Anyway, um, let's get into the book of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, I've already done too much talking. I want this morning to be as interactive as best as we can. Um, the first session will be a bit more content heavy. The second one will be much more uh, interactive. Uh, but to kind of get you guys used to talking, turn to the person next to you and just spend a minute or two sharing your experiences of the books Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, how has the Lord spoken to you in these books? Um, yeah. 
have a chat amongst yourselves a minute too, and we'll come back together. Let's let's have some people uh, share some notable experiences of these books. Um, anybody? Uh, anybody? Who who um, who's done the Bible in a year? kind of program and got shipwrecked on like the rocky shores of Leviticus. Can I have a show of hands if that's, yeah, a few brave people, there we go, okay. Um, who are, uh, I think I, I heard words like obscure down here, I think I might have caught a boring coming from the back. Is that, is that the general feel of the, of the room? Hard work, these books are hard work. Yeah? You feel oppressed reading them. Okay, we're going to try and do something about that today. Because I think they can be quite oppressive. So don't, don't you know, feel bad for saying that out loud. Um, okay, cool. Difficult to modern Yeah, Yeah, these are texts which come from a very different culture a long time ago, um, which makes them very strange for starters. But also as Christians, we kind of have a bit of a funny relationship to them because... This isn't how we live and worship. Church doesn't look like the book of Leviticus on a Sunday morning. At least I hope it doesn't. We don't do many sacrifices. Great, I'm pleased to hear that. I'm pleased to hear that. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy form the end of what the Jewish people call the Torah, um, which is the law, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And, um, I mean... An hour and 15 minutes to take you through these three books is, uh, is, is a challenge, would be a challenge for any teacher. Um, so we're going we're gonna, to, there's so much to cover this morning, uh, but rather than go into all the, the nuts and bolts of these books, answer every question, what I want to do is I want to liberate you guys to enjoy these books as, as God's gift to you as Christians. These are wonderful books in which the Holy Spirit sets out the gospel for those with eyes to see, to to gaze upon the beauty of what Jesus has done. And they can be really instructive for how Christians live in this life and in this world. And they can stir hope in our hearts for what God's kingdom will one day look like. So I want to help you guys read these texts as Christians and find life in the words of these pages. Does that sound good? Yeah? yeah? Okay. Well, that, that's my aim. Um, as we go through this morning, uh, if you've got like a hot potato question about these books, some obscure law about slavery you're just dying to ask me about, I'm going to ask you to park it to one side until later, and hopefully we'll get there. If you've got any questions you want about, you want me to clarify something, if I've said something and you think, what on earth was that? Uh, just stick your hand up, and if I don't see you, shout, oi, Matt, I won't be offended, um, and I'll try and clarify that for you. Are you guys hearing me better at the back now? Yeah. Great. Okay, good stuff. <laughs> um, okay. Reading the Torah as a Christian. It is very common in our kind of churches to hear people say, you have been saved from having to keep the law. Yeah, Particularly in New Frontiers, we love the doctrine of grace. And often the way we think is grace is, is kind of opposed to law. Grace is what comes and sets us free from law. And we, we treasure verses uh, like what Paul says in chapter 7 of, the, of his letter to the Romans. He says, we are released from the law, from the Torah, having died to that which held us captive. 
So having been released from the law of the old covenant, why should we Christians go back and read it devotionally? And understandably, many people don't, because they are very complicated books, as, as we kind of chatted about a second ago. But we need, to, we need to get the nuances, the clarity of how the New Testament actually refers to the law of the Old Testament. Because yes, Paul does talk about us having been released from it, but he also says that it was good. And if you, if you read through the New Testament, actually a surprisingly large amount of it is quoting from the Torah. So what does Paul have to say? I think Galatians 3 is a really helpful chapter. In uh, Galatians 3 verse 24, Paul says, The Lord was our tutor until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. And the word he uses for tutor there is a Greek word called paedagogos. Um, and when I teach that word, paedagogos, I like to refer to Mary Poppins. Uh, the paedagogos was a live-in tutor in a wealthy Roman hell- house. And so the paedagogos would, would live with the family and would be responsible for educating the kids. You know, teaching them to count and spell, but also teaching them good manners and how to represent their family well. Paul is saying that the Torah, the law of Moses, did that for God's people. And it was, it was doing that until Jesus came. Earlier in that chapter, he says it was added because of transgressions, because God's people were unruly, God had to give them this tutor to look after them until the offspring came to whom the promise had been made. Now, a, a, our context is a little bit complicated, but what he's, he's saying is the promises of the Old Testament given to Abraham which I'm sure... Was it Liam who did Genesis for you a couple of weeks ago? Who's I, Andy? Okay, yeah, okay, so I'm sure that when Andy Johnson did this, he would have talked about promises to Abraham and who's Abraham's offspring. Paul is saying Jesus is the one whom all the, the Old Testament promises were pointing towards, the one who would come and fulfil them. And the law was given until he was coming to prepare God's people for the, the Christ to come. In chapter 7 of Romans, Paul says, Is the law sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. Paul is saying that one of the reasons that the law was given was to teach God's people about human sin. It was also given to God's people to, to be an instruction to the whole world of God's wisdom. So speaking to the Jewish believers in Rome, in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the Torah and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the Torah, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the Torah the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? The Torah was given to God's people to instruct them as to God's righteousness, his wisdom. And the Jewish people were clinging on to it by the time of the New Testament as a kind of badge of honour. Because we've got this, we're great, we're so special. And Paul's saying, do you live up to it? So, to summarise, the Torah 
the first five books of the Bible were given for three reasons. To instruct God's people to wait for the true offspring of Abraham. To teach them that they are sinful. And to show the nations through Israel's culture and religion that the one God, one true God, loves his world and is working to redeem it. And for those reasons, Paul can say that the Torah is good. And if you look through the New Testament, um, as I said earlier on, the New Testament quotes the Torah loads. Um, If you look in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus uses the Torah for spiritual warfare. When he's in the desert being tested by the devil, he quotes Deuteronomy three times. So there you go. If you want to, you know... Do some spiritual battle. Deuteronomy is where you need to go, people. Um, in John's Gospel, John will take episodes from Exodus and Numbers to teach the meaning of Jesus' cross. So, uh, so John will talk about the rock in the wilderness from Exodus, and he'll talk about the bronze snake lifted up in Numbers. We'll look at that later on. And he will, he will take these episodes from these books and say that they give us an insight as to what is going on at the cross. Romans chapter 4 through to 11 is basically a commentary on Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The New Testament writers teach the gospel by exegeting, by reading and explaining the Old Testament law. And so as Christians, we should open these books looking to see what they are going to teach us about our beloved Jesus, about the grace of God, about the the full scope of salvation. If you want to know what Jesus has done for you, I can't think of, of many better books, actually, than these books of the Old Testament. Surprisingly, almost paradoxically, they're just, they're gold. That said, they are hard work. <laughs> uh, I realised, and I just confessed this to Sam a second ago, that uh, before Andy asked me to, to do this session, I'd only ever read Numbers once. Uh, and to be honest, I don't know if I can remember much. I mean, it was a pretty, like, you know, hold on to kind of the table as you're reading it, like, get through it as quickly as you can. Uh, I'd read Leviticus a few more times, mainly because it's so weird. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I think I dipped in and out of bits of Deuteronomy. These books are hard. And there's some very challenging passages for Christians to read in there. You know, things about violence, about the exclusion of unclean and or immoral individuals, uh, destruction of pagan cities. These are challenging things. And I think any good 21st century reader of the Bible should find those things challenging. But they're challenging to invite us to wrestle with God and his word. You know, like Jacob wrestling with the angel. God wants you to wrestle with him. That's why scripture is so hard. Um, I think the Holy Spirit has designed the Bible to be difficult so that you have to press in and, and grab hold of him to receive a blessing. And so we're going to do that this morning. To read these texts, um, which are hard, I think we need help. I, I really believe that, that the Bible um, is accessible to all people um, and that its meaning can be gathered by anybody, you know, from a university lecturer to somebody, you know, who came out of school, like, when they were 12. You know, I, 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 with all my heart, I believe that the Bible speaks to all people. But sometimes 
it requires a bit of learning some skills, being apprenticed uh, or discipled by the church in how to read the Bible. And we all have to go through that, you know. It's not that your elders just one day woke up and they, they knew how to read the Bible perfectly. They would have learnt it. They would have been mentored in how to read scripture. And one way that I want to share with you this morning is a tried and tested historical way of reading the Bible, uh, which is called the fourfold approach to reading scripture. Doesn't that just set your hearts on fire? What an exciting title. The fourfold. It gets better. You wait until you hear the different approaches. Um, the fourfold way of interpreting scripture um, looks to read the Bible in, in four ways, surprisingly. The literal or historical way of reading scripture. The allegorical way of reading scripture. The tropological It's an exciting word, isn't it? I had to look it up. Ethical, meaning the ethical way of reading scripture. And anagogical, another word which sent me flying from my dictionary, which means eschatological way. Now, you guys guys are all, I mean, you're with me, aren't you, on that? I can can tell. Um, You know, it hardly sets your pulse racing, does it, Uh, those words. Um, Fortunately, I came across a clever chap with a funny name called... Telford Work, um, who has a commentary on Deuteronomy, and he has simplified that for simpletons like myself. Um, And so, ignore everything I've just said in the last 30 seconds. It doesn't matter whatsoever if you retain that, but pay attention to the next bit. When we read these books of the Bible today, we're going to read them according to the letter. That's the plain meaning of the text. According to faith, and that's faith in the gospel. We're going to read them with hope for God's kingdom. And we're going to read them with love in our hearts. Love for God and love for our neighbour. Let me break that down a little bit and we're going to get interactive. So we're going to read it first. When we open these, these passages of scripture, the first thing we want to do is we want to read what does the letter of the word say? What is there plain for all eyes to see? What's the plain meaning of the text? And to do that, we, we should ask some questions. What kind of questions could we ask to try and understand just the plain meaning of a text? Let's have some people shout out. If you're trying to understand you know, what's going on in a passage, what kind of questions might you ask? What's the background? Who's it written to? Great questions, yeah. What's the context? Where does it fit in the big story of the Bible? Yeah. Who's doing the writing? Yeah, that's an important question. Who's it for as well? We said that a second ago, actually. Um, anything else? Maybe what different translations say? Yeah, look at different translations, different word studies. That can be really helpful in just unlocking what's going on in a passage. Um, who are the major players in this, in this uh, passage? Uh, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about his purposes? You can ask questions like, what would it feel like to be in this scene? Or what would it feel like to get to receive this letter? Would it be exciting? Would it be scary? And try and paint a picture of that. I think that can be a really helpful way of just meditating on what's going on. So we always start with the plain meaning. And we let the plain meaning of the text shape everything else. But we also read it according to faith. And that's faith in the gospel and the full revelation of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
So what kind of questions might we be asking of the text in this instance? This is a little bit trickier. But be brave. Have, have a guess. Sorry, can I repeat it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to read these, these texts according to faith in the gospel. So that's faith in who, who God has shown himself to be in Jesus Faith that he's our father, faith that he sends his Holy Spirit to live in us, that he's forgiven us of our sins, the whole package. So if we're reading an Old Testament text according to faith in the gospel, what might, what might we be looking for in the text? What it tells us about God's character. Yeah, what, what it tells us about God's character as revealed in Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So you know we're looking for things like mercy, forgiveness. Yeah. I think we're also looking for things like justice uh, and judgment as well, and because those things point us to the cross, don't they? And what Jesus has taken on our behalf. We're looking at the text for anything which particularly teaches us about Jesus's incarnation, why he became a man, why he suffered on our behalf. And it might be that in this passage there's characters or events which, which kind of in some mysterious way foreshadow who, what, who Jesus is and what he came to do. So it might be that, say, what Moses is doing in this moment when he's, he's pleading with God to forgive God's people who have sinned yet again, we get a, we get a bit of a picture of what Jesus does as our high priest as averting God's wrath from us. We're reading it according to faith. We're, we're trying to see how it points towards the future events of the Bible, particularly Jesus, and what he has done for us. Is that clear? Yeah? yeah. Okay. Then we read it according to hope. And what I mean by that is, is hope in God's coming kingdom. Hope in the resurrection of the dead. Hope that one day God is going to wipe away every tear and restore his creation. So what kind of things might we be looking for in the text in that way? Promises. Promises. Who said that? I can't. Yeah, it's a really good answer. Promises. God's promises to fix things which have gone wrong. To fix the brokenness of the world. It might be that we see instances of healing. Or it might be that we see the, the physical land of creation restored. It might be that we see social justice. And all these things give us foretastes of that day when God will wipe away every tear. It could be the opposite. We could be seeing travesty. It could be that we're seeing tragedy, injustice, sickness, death. And reading those things can move our hearts to go, Lord, please let your kingdom come. And then finally, we read it according to love. Love for God, love for our neighbour. How does this... Hang on, I'm about to give you the answers. It's not what I'm here for. Uh, how, what, it might, what might it mean? What might it mean to read the text according to to how it shows us to love God and love our neighbour. Have I answered that question? This is baby brain going on right now. 
please be gentle. What might of things will we be looking for in the text? Yeah, particularly in the books we're going to look at, there's a really big theme of, of treating foreigners, treating the sojourner is the word which is going to be used, or the alien, sounds more exotic, treating them in a loving, compassionate, just way. Um, so it's instructions in the text of how to love other people. God cares about how we care for other people. Martin Luther um, has this wonderful quote. He says, God doesn't need your righteousness, but your neighbour does. I like that. So how does this text teach us to love other people? What about loving God? Yeah. Yeah. Great answer. We're looking to how this text shows us about God's heart for things. What pleases God? What does a life lived in worship of God look like? Um, so, how does this text teach us to love God, to love our neighbour? Yeah. Yeah. And and the text can teach us how not to live as well. They can be instructive for us. Um, Paul says, to, I think it's in Romans, no, it's in Corinthians, he says that all these things in the Old Testament were written for our instruction. That's the good and the bad. To teach us how to live a life of loving God and loving our neighbour. Okay. Sweet mercy, look at the time. Any clarifying questions? We're going to put all of this into practice over the rest of this morning. So hopefully we will learn by doing. I've just dumped all the content on you right there. And we're going we're gonna to give this a go. Okay, so with, with that approach in mind, let's get into the juicy book of Leviticus. Leviticus. Uh, it's called Leviticus in your Bible because... Um, when English translators uh, were translating it, they thought, well, most of it is written to the, the tribe of Levi, who were the priests, and so let's call it Leviticus. Um, it's actually, I, th- I don't think it does it justice. So the Hebrew word for this book is Vayikra, uh, which literally means he called or and he called. Um, and that's referring to the fact that this book is, well, if it was in the New Testament, it would be 90% red letter. It's almost like, from start to finish, God's words to Moses. The Lord speaking to Moses. So let's, let's I'm going to do an overview of each one of these books according to um, the letter, faith, hope, love. Um, and then when we get around to Numbers and Deuteronomy, I want to get you to, to look at passages according to that model as well. Um, so let's, let's just do an overview of Leviticus uh, according to the letter. Um, and so we, we discussed those questions you want to ask of a text um, when you're, you're reading according to the letter. Let's, let's think about the context of Leviticus. Leviticus is all about how God is going to live amongst sinful people. So rewind back to the start of the Bible. You have 
God creates the world and he puts a garden in the middle of it where his presence dwells with Adam and Eve. And humanity is, is to live in this garden, to take care of it, but then to, to go out from the garden and to bring God's kingdom on, over the whole earth, to take God's, God's presence with them. So the Bible starts with this beautiful, intimate picture of relationship between humanity and God. He walks with them in the cool of the day. But then sin enters in. And Adam and Eve have to be cast out of the garden, which means they have to leave God's presence. Because God is holy, God can't allow sin to to be around him in a way which makes it look like he affirms it. We'll look at that a little bit more in the next session when we come to the doctrine of sin. God can't associate with sin. Not because sin's got some power over him, but because God, who is, is just and good, can't, can't appear to endorse sin. And so Adam and Eve have to leave the garden. But God is not content to let his creation, which he made to be good, go to ruin. And so he starts a rescue plan with Abraham and Abraham's family. And then uh, and, and his promise is to bless the whole world through this family. Later in the story, he finds them in slavery in Egypt. He brings them out of slavery through the Exodus. He takes them to Mount Sinai, where he gives them his instructions as to how they're to live a holy life. Uh, And whilst Moses, Israel's leader, is up the mountain talking face to face with God, God's people are rebelling against him and building a golden calf to worship an idol. And uh, they're exchanging the glory of God for a lie. And they worship this this calf and God's heart is broken he's furiously angry Moses prays that God would be patient and would look after Israel would would bear with them God accepts Moses's prayer and then what happens is God gives them a new way for Israel to live with him and so he asks Moses to build the the tabernacle the tent of meeting which we might have a picture you kind of got a nice little picture in the background there. There we go. There we go. That's taken from the ESV study Bible. Um, God gives a, a, a tent where his presence is going to dwell amongst the Israelite people. Um, however, there's a problem because God's presence is both a blessing and a hazard for sinful people. Because, as I said, God can't associate with evil with sin. And so God will bring judgment whenever sin encroaches upon his presence. And so you see uh, in Exodus, but also uh, in Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, that whenever people uh, just brazenly, inappropriately try to go into God's presence, it does not go well for them. There's a story in Leviticus 10 of two priests who go into God's presence in a very carefree manner. They think they can just waltz right in and God kills them. He strikes them down with fire. To have God's presence amongst the camp is both a a blessing and a hazard. And so Leviticus starts with God speaking to Moses from out of the tent. So God's presence is in the tent. Moses can't enter in. Even Moses, who who at this point in history has the closest relationship with the Lord of anybody else, cannot enter into the tent because he's sinful. And so... Leviticus is God's instructions to Moses as to how sinful people are to to come into his presence. That's that's the purpose of the book of Leviticus. 
as I said, it's, it's 90% the words of the Lord spoken to Moses. Um, and pretty much all of it is legislation. It's all laws for, for how Israel is to live and worship. And it's interesting because it, it goes, the text will go from how Israel are to worship to how they're to manage their economic relations. And it will move from one to the other. It will go from big social justice to individual sexual purity to unclean animals to how to, to worship. Um, because for Israel, all of these things were to be worshipped. The whole of one's life was to be worshipped to God. So I think of the content and the structure of Deuteronomy. So I've said that the big, the big theme of it is how can simple people live in God's presence? And God gives his people three ways in which they can live with him. And these three ways are rituals that he gives them, the priesthood, that's the, the Levites, a, a tribe of the nation of Israel whose job it is to stand as mediators to mediate, to represent God to man and man to God. And then God gives them purity laws. And the book is structured around these three ways that God gives Israel to live with him. So the book starts and finishes by looking at various rituals that God gives. So chapters 1 to 7, you've got the offerings these are the sacrifices that Israel are to make to be in relationship with God. Um, the first three are, are kind of neutral or, or kind of positive. They're ways of worshipping God. So the first one is, is the burnt offering. And if we have time, we're going to get up and act these out later, um, which will be good fun. Um, the burnt offering is, is a way of just worshipping God, of, of you would take a bull, you would kill it, and the whole thing would be burnt on the altar. And it would be a way of expressing, the Israelites expressing to God, I'm giving you my all. The burnt offering is, I'm giving you my all. The grain offering is a way of just saying thank you for God's blessing of the land and giving crops. And get, um, the peace offering was a way of enjoying uh, communion with God. You would take the sacrifice into the tabernacle, into the tent, the priest would kill it, and then you and the priest would sit down and eat in the presence of God. What, what an amazing God. I mean, let's just pause right there. A God who wants to have dinner with sinful people. That's amazing. Then you've got the sin and the guilt offering, and these are, these are atoning. Now, actually... Let me step back. So, uh, sin offering and the guilt offering are, are ways of God's people saying sorry and of having their sins forgiven. Um, the sin offering is given for unintentional sins. And just think on that for a second. There's a whole category of sacrifice just for the sins you don't even know that you're doing. <laughs> we'll come back and think about that later. And then there's the guilt offering, which is for sins where um, you know that you've done it and you're guilty. Um, it's interesting that Leviticus separates those two out. And then chapters 6 and 7, there's offerings, sacrifices that the priests had to make, which were slightly different to everybody else. So there are the rituals at the start of the book. And at the, at the end of the book, we've got details of how God's people were to Sabbath. That's take a rest every week on the 
on the first day of the week. Um, you've got the detail of the major festivals that Israel were to celebrate, which were to remember the story of how God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And, and these festivals also kind of point the way to the future and things that God will do for them. You've got details of, of the furniture in the tabernacle. Um, you've got details of the Sabbath year. So every seventh year um, was to be a year of rest. And the year of Jubilee, every 50th year, was to be this, this wonderful year of, of all debts being released. Um, and we're going to look at that later on. You've got chapters about social welfare. Uh, and then you've got promises of blessing and disobedience. Um, and laws about vows. So the book begins and finishes by how all of God's people were to live these rituals to show what it means to be in relationship with a holy God. The middle sections describe the priesthood. Um, So uh, the consecration of Aaron, Aaron's Moses' brother, um, and him and his children are to be the priests to lead lead God's people. And two of his sons, as I mentioned earlier on, just waltz into the presence of God and it does not work out too well for them. Um, and then later on, in chapters 21 and 22, you've got God's standard for how the priests are to live. Because they've got to minister between God and man and man and God, they are expected to live a higher standard of purity. Which is challenging, because the New Testament says we are all priests in the household of God. And then in the middle, you've got... Uh, purity laws so chapters 11 to 15 describes what is clean and unclean in god's eyes um, so it starts with clean and unclean animals and really there's there's no way to know why why some animals are clean and, and others not but there's plenty of theories out there but I, i'm not aware of one which everybody seems to agree with But these were cultural symbols that reminded Israel that their relationship with God is to affect all of life, including what they eat. And then you've got uh, laws about various kind of human things which make one clean or unclean. Um, So reproductive fluids, skin diseases, touching moulds, touching dead bodies. And people wonder why you don't want to, you know, people wonder why Leviticus is a hard book to read. Um, Why do these things make one unclean? It's because they all represent life and death, which are sacred to God's people, because God is the author of life. To be unclean in Leviticus doesn't, make one, doesn't mean that you are guilty of a particular sin. Uh, this is a little bit complicated. Um, to be unclean, you would you'd take a bath, you'd offer a sacrifice, you might have to leave your tent for a few days, and then you were made clean again. Um, touching these things wasn't necessarily sinful. Um, it was a way that Israel were to live that demonstrated that in, in a world of sin, we are all unclean. Does that make sense? Um, it's not so much that, you know... So, for example... Uh, women having women who are on their menstrual cycle having a period makes them unclean. Does that make them sinful? You'd be very pleased to know that my answer is no. <laughs> uh, but but what's amazing is is even these you know functions of our bodies become symbolic and prophetic for God's people 
under the old covenant. They speak of how the whole world under sin is unclean. People often ask why it is that God's people no longer have to keep these purity customs from Leviticus. Why is it that we can now eat pork? Why is it that when a lady comes on a period she's not unclean? Um, Why is it that we don't keep those laws but we Christians insist upon some of the, the sexual laws from Leviticus? Well, Leviticus itself doesn't actually give us any answers as to why that is the case. We have to read it according to the rest of the story. We have to read Leviticus according to faith in the gospel to answer those things. And so we'll come back to that question in a minute. But we, uh, before we do, um, you will have noticed on, my, uh, on the little chart up there that I've missed the central bit of the book. The very heart of Leviticus is these two chapters, chapter 16 and 17, which describe the Day of Atonement. And this was a day uh, in which all of Israel would come together to celebrate. Um, And it was a solemn day. It was a day in which the sins of all God's people were atoned for. Um, And it was this amazing and elaborate process by which the priests would take two goats. And one of the goats would be killed as an offering for sin for all of God's people. Um, and would be killed in the, in the tabernacle, in the tent, and the blood would be taken in to the Holy of Holies, the, the central part, the central part of the tabernacle where God's presence was. And then the second goat would have the priest lay his hands on its head, confess all the sins of God's people, so that that goat represented God's people's sins, and the goat would then be cast out into the wilderness to represent God taking our sin and taking it from us, separating us from it. This dramatic uh, enactment of God's forgiveness. And it would make the whole nation atone for. And that word atone for is very important in Leviticus. It comes up lots of different places. Does anybody have an idea what it means? Give us a, give us a guess. Isn't it saying sorry for being really sorry for what you've done wrong? Saying sorry, being really sorry for what you've done wrong? is a part of it being forgiven forgiven is a part of it as well anybody else lady at the back Um, it's like bringing back bringing back yeah that's a really good answer what were you going to say at the back (laughs) what she said Um, yeah atonement means at one made at one made it's to, to be at one with God, which involves being, being sorry for one's sins, means receiving forgiveness, it means being in relationship and having peace with God. And the word crops up again and again in Leviticus. Is it reconciliation? Reconciliation is a part of it as well. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Reading Leviticus according to faith. Leviticus teaches us about God's holiness. God is perfectly just and loving. And he's both without compromising one for the other. Leviticus shows us that God's holiness opposes sin and all of its effects. And yet at the same time provides a way for humanity to come before him. And the way that Leviticus teaches both upholds God's opposition to sin and overcomes it. 
And an example of this is chapter 7, which describes the guilt offering. Remember I said that the guilt offering was for sins that you knew that you had done, you were, you were guilty of. And, and when God is introducing this law to Moses, he says it is a most holy thing. You want to know what God's holiness looks like? Look at his priorities. And he says the forgiveness of guilty sinners is a holy thing. That's what God's holiness looks like. And as we read Leviticus and how it points towards Jesus, it gives us a full and well-rounded picture of what he has done for us. How the Son of God has perfectly atoned for our sins and brought us into communion with his Father by his Spirit. Jesus is our sacrifice for all sin. His death on the cross is God's act of dealing with his own wrath. His burial in the tomb is him taking our sin and burying it there, leaving it in death. His life of obedience, Jesus' perfect life, lived in the power of the Spirit, is the true offering of creation back to God. And his resurrection is the first fruits of God's restoration of creation. Why is it that Christians don't keep the uh, cleanliness laws of Leviticus? Well, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God's cleaning up of creation has already begun. And so in Christ, things which were once deemed to be unclean are now clean for God's people. That's why we read it differently. If we read Leviticus according to hope, it gives us a glorious picture of creation restored, particularly in its festivals, uh, in all the celebrations which are described at the end of the book. We glimpse a land and a society at rest in which all debts, all uncleanness, all discord are replaced by feasting in the presence of God. It's a beautiful picture. And if we read Leviticus with love, it teaches us to be holy as God is holy. And that looks like loving our neighbour as we love ourselves. We who have benefited from God's glorious holiness in the gospel, who have had our sins atoned for, can confidently live this out as we offer our whole life back to God. Sorry, did somebody ask a question? No? Yeah. Jesus is the Lamb of God, which is John the Baptist points it out, doesn't he? Uh, again and again, the New Testament will use Leviticus imagery to describe what Jesus has done for us. As I said, we're going we're gonna to get into acting out Leviticus later on, which will be uh, good fun. Um, we can work out who's going to be our bulls and goats and all those things. I'm going to let you decide rather than pick, because that could go wrong. That has gone wrong for me in the past, actually. <laughs> Let's move on to the book of Numbers. Well done, everybody. You survived Leviticus. How are you doing? Great. Okay. Okay. Let's read the book of Numbers. Man. I'm, you can tell I'm trying to get through all the material. I'm like running away with myself. The Hebrew word for uh, name for numbers is Bamid Bar. We said. Pardon, sorry? Oh no, sorry. Um, which literally means in the wilderness. 
So let's read In the Wilderness according to the letter. What's the context? How does it fit into the big story? Well, having instructed Israel as to how to live with the presence of God amongst them, they're now to set out. And what's interesting is how Numbers starts. Remember I said Leviticus begins with God speaking to Moses from the tent. So Moses is outside, God's in the tent. Numbers starts with Moses being in the tent. Leviticus has worked. There has been a way for God's people, Moses and God's people, to come into God's presence. And so now Moses is in the tabernacle and and God speaks to him. And Moses is to lead the people of Israel out from Mount Sinai, where they've been, uh, and they're to head through the wilderness into the land that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Now this journey should take two weeks. Does anybody know how long it actually takes? 40 years. Uh, Because again and again, God's people are going to be disobedient and rebellious. And so they will have to stay in the wilderness for 40 years. The form of Numbers is interesting. I actually think Numbers is probably the hardest of the three books to read. Um, Partly because long sections of it are uh, just the counting of God's people which is where the English name Numbers come from. I mean, who, who translated that? It's a profoundly boring title for a book, isn't it? Whoever did that was setting up generations of Christians to fail <laughs> because it just sounds profoundly boring. Um, in the wilderness sounds much cooler. Um, sections of it are just counting God's people. There's a census at the beginning and at the end. Uh, other bits are details of how God's people are to move through the wilderness, how they're to march in a particular order. It's very kind of legislative and kind of administrative, uh, which is not how I tick. But some of you, you know, there might be some accountants in the room who are like, I love the book of Numbers. Um, but Numbers jumps. It goes, it goes from, from these quite... Uh, black and white descriptions of things to then really moving bits of narrative to prophecy and then it will just throw the odd law in here and there and sometimes the order of numbers can can appear quite arbitrary almost like it's just randomly jumping from one thing to the other but that's not actually the case Um, and I'll hopefully try and illustrate that um, as we work through the content So numbers can be structured around three locations, rough locations in the wilderness, and then God's the the journey God takes the people through. So there's five sections really to the book. Uh, The first section is in the wilderness of Sinai. So they're by Mount Sinai. Uh, Leviticus, God's instructions in Leviticus have just finished. And God orders Moses to count the number of men in each tribe and to list the head of the clans. It's a census uh, to see where God's people are at numerically uh, and to structure them according to a a certain form of government. Um, After that, the Lord tells Moses how Israel are to, to camp, how they're to pitch their tents. That's the degree to which Israel's life was meant to be spiritually significant. And so, interestingly, they, they camp in, a, in the shape of a cross with the tabernacle, God's presence, right at the heart, and then the tribes fanning out north, south, east, and west. When they're to move off, God tells them that the Ark of the Covenant is to go at the very front of the army, 
leading forward with the tribe of Judah following next and so on and so forth. There's details for how the Levites are to carry the, the furniture of the temple um, and how to look after it because it's precious and it's holy. And then in these chapters, um, all of a sudden, it switches to describe a few laws, five laws in particular, um, which, as I said, can seem quite arbitrary, but actually they're quite important for where the rest of numbers will go. So there's laws which kind of, these five laws exemplify big themes that Israel were to live with. So there's, there's laws about cleanliness and uncleanliness, sin and righteousness, faithfulness and infidelity, devotion to God and apostasy. Um, and actually, these, these laws, as I said, kind of foreshadow what is going to happen in the rest of Numbers. Because the, God's people are going to fail on each one of those accounts. So, for example, there is a, a test in chapter 5 of whether a woman has been unfaithful to her husband. If her husband, getting a bit jealous, thinks that his wife might have been unfaithful to him, there's a test in which she can bring, him, bring her to the temple, to the tabernacle, sorry. Um, and they will perform this test to see whether she has been or not. And you can read it and just think, what on earth is this? And, you, you know, you could kind of go, oh, this is an example of a patriarchal society. But actually, it's, it's, it's painting a picture of how Israel, God's bride, are going to be unfaithful to him. And he's going to test them throughout this book as to will they be faithful or not. And when you kind of read these, these, these verses about laws in that big picture, they, they start to make sense a little bit more. Verses 10 to 12, uh, Israel sets off and things seem to be going well at first. Everybody falls into line. They follow the presence of God who leads them in the pillar of the cloud by day and the, the fire by night. It's this wonderful picture of how God leads his people. Uh, but very quickly things go wrong. Uh, God's people start to complain. And it's, it's unbelievable. They say they missed the food that they had as slaves back in Egypt. They literally say we missed the cucumbers in Egypt. I, I don't even, yeah, there's no comment to make about that, is there really? Cucumbers, sure. Um, because of this, Moses despairs um, and he asks God to help him. And so uh, God tells him to bring some of the elders, 70 elders from the people. And God takes some of the Holy Spirit that he's given to Moses and puts it on these elders and they start prophesying. It's a very interesting passage. Um, but then soon after that, Aaron and Miriam, Moses' brother and sister, start to complain about his leadership. You know, who made you the boss of us? Um, and uh, as a result, Miriam is struck down with leprosy by the Lord and then um, it has to be cleansed. Uh, it's not a good start to their journey. And then chapters 13 to 19, we're in the wilderness of Paran. Um, and when we get to Paran, Moses sends out spies to go into the promised land. So we're getting close now. Um, and so uh, he sends a spy for each of the tribes and Joshua, who is Moses' right-hand man, to go and spy out the land. And they come back and Joshua and Caleb... Uh, who's one of the 12 who goes out, say, wow, it's an amazing land. Uh, let's take it. The Lord is going to bless us. 
The remaining 11 grumble because they've seen uh, how intimidating the cities who are in the land are. They're fortified up to heavens and they're like giants. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes, they say. And God's people get scared. They grumble. They say, God's brought us out of Egypt just to kill us. Um, and it's, it's a terrible instance of God's people not trusting in their Lord after everything he's done for them. Think back to the Exodus, you know, and the signs and wonders God showed to bring them out of Egypt. Um, and so as a result, God judges them. And he says that the responsible generation, the older generation, are going to die in the wilderness. They will not go into the promised land, but their children will. Despite this, the adults then think, well, we'll go and take it anyway. We'll go and do it. And that doesn't work out so well for them. Uh, they again, they, they rebel against Moses' leadership, and many of them are then destroyed. Uh, and then this, chap, this, this section finishes with God um, highlighting his holiness again by giving them certain laws. Um, then we're into chapters 20 to 21, and Israel are on the move again. So God has said, you are not going to go into the, world, into the promised land. You will stay in the wilderness for 40 years. So he turns them back, and they go. And so they then move between the, kind of the lands of Edom, Negeb, and Bashan. Um, and things don't get better. In fact, they get worse. Uh, in these chapters, even Moses grumbles against the Lord. Um, and God tells him to, to bring water from a rock to, to, um, to quench the thirst of God's people. Moses loses his rag and he, he cracks the rock twice. And as a result of this, God says, even you, Moses, aren't going to go into the promised land. You'll see it, but you won't enter in yourself. Um, Israel faces opposition from the king of Edom, uh, who won't let them come through. Aaron, Moses' brother, dies. And then again, the people rebel and God punishes them by sending poisonous snakes into the camp. Uh, but the people can be saved and forgiven so long as Moses makes a, a staff with a bronze serpent on, lifts it up, and the people look at the, the bronze serpent and they'll be healed. It's a very strange passage. The meaning of it isn't explained in numbers, um, but it's an interesting picture. The final section um, moves into the land of Moab. And as God's people go into Moab, they defeat a couple of pagan kings, which is good for morale. Uh, but bad news for the king of Moab, uh, a chap called Balak, who is getting a bit edgy about uh, the nation of Israel moving around on his turf. And so he decides to get a pagan sorcerer called Balaam in. And uh, Balaam uh, has an encounter with the Lord on the road when he's riding his donkey. It's a really interesting episode worth reading. Um, and Balaam uh, decides that he's going to try and pray to the God of Israel and ask him to curse the people of Israel. And so three times, Balaam gears himself up to pray in front of Balak and Balak's princes. But each time he does, no, sorry, four times he does this, he ends up blessing God's people. He prophesies blessing over God's people. He tries to curse them, but all he can do is utter blessing over them. And it's this wonderful moment in, in the book of Numbers because you've got God's people moving through the land, rebelling, being disobedient. And then up in the hills, you've got this pagan sorcerer who's trying to curse them. And yet, even there, God is fighting for his people. 
and turning the curse into blessing because he loves them and he's so patient and kind with them. And in fact, soon after Balaam blesses uh, Israel, they start worshipping Baal, one of the gods of the pagan nations. Uh, It's just ridiculous. Um, And yet, exposing us to my own difficulties in my own worship of the Lord. God judges those who worship Baal. um, And at this point, most of the older generation have died now. Moses takes a census of a new generation and begins to prepare them for what lies ahead. Uh, All the tribes give offerings so that Israel can uh, celebrate the big festivals. Um, Moses appoints Joshua to succeed him. Uh, They defeat the Midianites. And then two of the tribes, Reuben and Gad, decide to settle uh, south of the Jordan before they've they've crossed over into the Promised Land. Uh, Laws are given which describe how the Levites are allowed to live in certain cities, uh, territorial boundaries are set up, tribal governments, um, and so on and so forth. And that's how the book finishes, with God's people looking over the river into the promised land. All in all, Numbers is a big, complex book with lots going on. So let's see how we can read it with faith and hope and love and see how it can instruct us. I think more than any other book of the Bible, Numbers shows us how God is faithful to his promises. When I read Numbers, I'm I'm so reminded of my own faculty, you know. I can get out of bed in the morning, grab a good cup of coffee, open my Bible if the kids aren't screaming, and I'm like, yes, Lord, I love you, I want to live for you today. By 10 o'clock, I can just be living like all my non-Christian neighbours and and friends, you know? Do you recognise that in yourself? I I see it in in Numbers. Um, And yet Numbers paints this glorious picture of how God is faithful to his people, despite all their disobedience. Numbers shows us his fatherly commitment to bring his children into his purposes through both blessing and discipline. The New Testament in the book of Hebrews teaches us the Lord disciplines the child he loves. And we see that. And then at the heart of the book of Numbers, we have the long-suffering figure of Moses, who is eventually to be replaced by Joshua. Now, does anybody know the Hebrew for the name Joshua? Yeshua, did somebody say? Yeah, Yeshua. And Yeshua can be translated in a different way. Does anybody know what it is? Jesus, yes, it's the Sunday school answer. It's a safe answer. You can all shout it out. Moses is to be replaced by Yeshua. And our Jesus is the greater Moses, who both succeeds in the wilderness where Israel failed. And Jesus goes and is tested in the wilderness by the devil. Jesus is our better Moses, who sympathizes us in all our trials and temptations. That's what the book of Hebrews says. And he delivers us from God's judgment upon our sins. Jesus is our bronze snake who is lifted up at the cross for our salvation. That's what Jesus himself taught in John chapter 3. He's the true king of nations as prophesied by Balaam. In Balaam's third prophecy of blessing over Israel, he says, From the tribe of Judah there will come a king who will rule over the nations. And that is ultimately the Lion of Judah himself, Jesus. 
Jesus is the presence of God who goes before us into battle and stands against all that intimidates us. I think if you read it with faith, the book of Numbers has some wonderful things to say. And it struck me the other day, actually, um, because of their disobedience, because of their sin, the older generation of Israel has to die in the wilderness and the new generation will be the ones to inherit the blessing. And that's a bit similar to us as Christians because we have to die to ourselves, don't we, in order that the new self might receive the blessings of God. When we become Christians in baptism, we are joined with Christ in his death and resurrection. We go into the water. We have died with Christ. The old has died and now the new lives. But every day as we walk through the wilderness of this world, we have to put to death the old man in order that the new might receive blessing. And so the judgments upon God's people throughout numbers, the Lord disciplining his people gives us a framework to understand how as we walk through this life, we are called to put to death the deeds of the flesh, which is what Paul says in, in Romans 8. By the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the flesh that the new man might live. Numbers can give us hope because as we journey with Israel through the wilderness, we can see so much of our own failures and infidelities. And yet the steadfast resolve of God to bring his people into promises assures us that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. And Numbers teaches us to love. As we see how God loves his people, it should shape how we love others. And the New Testament says, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all things and I think we see a picture of what that kind of love looks like in the God we see in the book of Numbers and as I said earlier on it also teaches us that the Lord disciplines the son he loves and so when God is testing you and putting you through trial when it feels like he is putting to death things in you that is his love for you embrace it because it's bringing about blessing It also means that in love we can speak the truth in challenge to other people. But actually to to be a Christian and to love your neighbour isn't just, you know, to be kind and to bless them. It's also to bring loving challenge out of a place of love. Numbers can teach us all these things. Okay. I've talked for way too long. So I need to get you guys to do something. So I am going to give uh, the various tables some passages from the book of Numbers. uh, And the aim of the game is for you to read the passage in your group. And then uh, I want you to read them according to the letter. What, What does the text say? What's going on in it? What's the context? Um... Then I want you to read it according to faith. How does this passage point us towards the gospel of Jesus? Read it according to hope. How does this passage point us to God's kingdom? And then read it according to love. How does this passage teach you to love God and love your neighbour? 
You can also use this as a moment to stretch your legs, have a wee break, whatever you need to do. Uh, so um, before you all run off, let me assign some passages. Are they? Yes. Okay. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to label the tables and you've got that passage. Okay. Does that make sense? So you guys are A, B, C, D. At the back, you guys are A. At the back on my right, you guys are B. And then... The lads there, Mr. Green T-shirt, yeah, there we go. You guys are C? C, there we go. <laughs> uh, D, A, B, C. Um, and maybe, if you guys take note of, of what passage you've got, I might ask Andy on the PowerPoint to put up the table which had the, the different ways of reading so you can see that. Well... At the very least, some of you had enough time to make a proper brew. Uh, okay, if you want to come back and grab your seats, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to crack on, we're going to give a bit of feedback from this, go through Deuteronomy, and then we'll have another little break. Um, and then I will work out how on earth to do Doctrine of Sin and the stuff we're going to do in Leviticus before we go. Um, yeah, that's the plan. Okay, so um, let's have one of the groups who had those passages give feedback. And just to say, I, I, I don't really think there's right or wrong answers. Actually, no, I take that back. There definitely are, like... <laughs> what do I mean? I, I don't think there are... I think when you're reading a passage according to the letter, to what actually it says then it's, it's easier to kind of say right or wrong answers as to how you're reading it, you know? Um, <clears throat> but when it comes to reading with faith and hope and love, I don't think there's just one correct way of reading a passage, if that makes sense. I think there can be wrong ways of reading a passage, you know, ways which corrupt the meaning of the gospel, say. But I, I think... You know, Scripture is abundant. The Spirit speaks multiple things through it, which is why it takes the whole church. Am I, am I making some nasty noises? Okay. You can hear me? Okay. Um, so with that in mind, uh, let's, let's have some folks. So uh, who, had, who are the A-tables? A-table, A-table. Which A-table feels up for feeding back? You can fight between yourselves. They put their hand up first. Oh, Sam says they put their hand up. And for that, Sam can go. <laughs> uh, who wants to? Do you, you, yeah. Okay, so uh, tell us about your passage according to the letter. Uh, so it summarizes that if someone is unclean um, in any respect, then they must leave the camp of the people. Yep. Can you guys hear him? Okay, nice and loud, Sam, if you can. Oh, so it summarises that if someone is unclean, touches something that's dead, or has become defiled through contact or something else, that they must leave the camp. Cool. Yep, unclean, out of the camp. Uh, and how did you read it according to faith? Um, so it, it demonstrated that the revelation of God is that he can't stand things that are defiled, um, and he won't allow that to corrupt his people or his presence. Okay, so that's a good, that's a good reading. Can you summarise on the... Yeah, okay. So what Sam said was, uh, what 
the passage, when he read it by faith, what it taught him was that uh, God cannot stand to be around unclean things. They have to leave the camp. Which is interesting, because that's true. Now, this is why I have to be careful, because one, you picked me up earlier on this morning, and I said about the no wrong ways of of reading. Um, When God comes in the flesh, when Jesus walks on the earth, what's his relationship with unclean things? Like lepers, say. He 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 actually touches them, doesn't he? Um, so you're right. Leviticus does teach us that that God takes sin so seriously that the uncleanness that it brings into creation is to be separate from Him. But Leviticus also gives us a picture of how God wants that uncleanness to be dealt with and come near to Him to re- to return back to Him eventually. And in Jesus, we we see an even clearer picture of that when he goes and he touches unclean things. Um, Because in Jesus, he's so clean, his his cleanliness makes up for the uncleanliness of all other things. Um, It's the tensions, isn't it, of reading the the old and the new together like that. I guess the last bit that you've got, I've got under the hope. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, mate, I've I've stole your thunder. Okay. What did you read according to hope, Sam? Yeah, it was it was the fact that whilst he like the revelation of God's character is that he can't stand sin, the hope is that actually the other part of his character is that he wants to deal with it and create a way that gives us hope that we can come back to his presence. Yeah. Oh, you said that so well. You should do the rest of the session for me, mate. Um, to summarise, uh, what Sam said was it gives us hope that actually, although God does separate uncleanliness from him, he wants to work to overcome it and to. to to clean that which has been unclean. Um, and how did it shape your reading according to love? So I, I can't, well, so the way I looked at it was that God was actually removing them out of the camp rather than out of the tabernacle. So it was less about God's presence, but actually the people that are defiled and sinful in the camp, their sin impacts other people. Yeah. Um, so that actually it related to... Like, I guess you can flip that and say, well, when we are not defiled, where we love and display those characteristics of God, we benefit other people, so we're able to rub off the goodness of God onto other people. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of how I, how to, how I took it. Yeah, that's great. That's a great reading. So what Sam said is, uh, because people who are unclean weren't just to stay away from the tabernacle, they had to get out of the camp altogether. Uh, their uncleanliness affected other people. Our sin affects other people. But then the reverse of that is true. Our being righteous in Christ can have an effect on other people. Um, And so the reverse can be true for us as Christians. Top stuff. Thanks, guys. Uh, Who had the B passages? Now, I think to to save me having to parrot back, uh, I'm going to invite somebody who had a B passage to be brave and come up the front. Uh, So who wants to do that? Lots of shaking heads. No, 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 not me, not me. Go on, somebody can do it. Yeah, give him a round of applause. I just hate the silence. <laughs> okay, do you want to talk us through it? The letter, uh, it, it was um, 6 22 to 27, it's all about the. Uh, blessing of God, the passage about, you know, our blessing will keep, I'll make my face shine upon you. Mm. Uh, the letter for me was all, of, or for us, sorry, uh, was that there's a promise of God's presence 
which comes to us, and that's, that's, that's the heart of it. God promises to be with and oversee and be part of his people, which is brilliant. Uh, the faith, or the way I read that, is that, that we're brought into the promise as Christians because we're adopted into his family. So, so we're adopted and we're promised that presence. Mm. We can live with that. Um, hope. It would be really good if I had my glasses and could read my own writing. The hope is that we will see the face of God as we live. And oh, great. eventually in the future, we will see the face of God. And uh, love, for me, is, ha- is how we love our neighbour. We've seen how we're promised the presence of God, how God promises his presence and blessings to us. And sometimes we have to realise that we are the blessing to those around us. Lovely. Give them a round of applause. Uh, and who had the passage, uh, the sea passage? Who wants to come up and do that? Oh, was that an arm? I saw go up there. It looked like an arm to me, didn't it? He's like one of, I think, Tim's an elder, aren't you, Tim? Tim? Yeah, okay, and so you're elder, did it? So you've got to do it now. You know. <laughs> What's your name, buddy? I'm David. Come on, David, up to the mic. Uh, tell us how you read it, how you and your table read it. Um, well, I'm pretty stumped. So this one is um, Moses calls, like, 70 elders, and then, well, the Lord tells him to call these elders, and then he says, I'm going to share, give, take some spirit off them, put it off you and put it on them so that you're not burdened. And then um, the 24-25 bit... Um, says that they did that and then the elders prophesied for a little bit and then they stopped and they never prophesied again. <laughs> so um, I think in the letter, just the plain meaning, yeah, God's um, giving Moses some people to help him out with something. It doesn't say what they prophesy about, but maybe for, I don't know, direction on something in um, the nation's life. Um, in terms of reading by faith, I think, well, we thought that it kind of hints towards the fact that God's people will prophesy and like the revelation of the Spirit, and um, like in Acts where the Spirit comes down and uh, they all prophesy and talk in tongues. Um, Let me push you on that a little bit. So you're right, you're, you're totally right, and the pointing towards Acts 2 is definitely, Acts 2 is looking back at this moment. Um, so the spirit is on Moses, and God takes it from Moses and puts it on the others. In the New Testament, who is the spirit first and foremost on? Jesus. Jesus. And then, because of what Jesus has done, God takes the spirit of Christ and puts it on the believers. Um, you were there. You were like way more than halfway there. <laughs> I'm just riding on your glory. Okay. Um. In terms of hope, I, I don't know what we thought about this. I just wrote down something about um, <laughs> that we might all prophesy or that, that it's not going to be just for like individuals, but for, yeah, for like, more in the community. Um, and then at the end, I've just written something about communion, <laughs> sharing in the spirit corporately. Or, like, and I wasn't sure about that. Uh, about, um, the last bit, but I think, I don't know, something, I think there's this sense of 
um, like coming together in the spirit and not being there's, uh, it says like Moses is not going to be burdened by being by having the spirit right. so I think that's a kind of actually like coming together in the spirit and sharing in that corporately and that being something that unifies us great that's spot on that's perfect give him a big round of applause excellent exegesis and a cracking shirt there we go well done David and then uh, who had uh, the D passage the serpents I know you're out there I definitely assigned it come on give her a round of applause what's your name go on Ruth lay it down Um, for the letter, so we had the one about the snakes. Um, so they were complaining, um, and then you get punished. Um, yeah, so it's about complaining, not trusting in God, and the context was like God's done all this amazing stuff for them, and then they're just moaning. Um, for the faith bit, so it's we thought it was about forgiveness um, and about salvation. So we looked at the fact that the staff, so Moses prays, and they're told um, told to build this staff, and the staff has the snake on it, um, and that's like God is using what is killing them to like heal and save them um, and then that's directly referenced as well in John we found so Jesus himself references the staff um, and that it's lifted up and God's lifted up on the cross um, so yeah so that's like a direct reference can I just push it I mean you are spot on there <laughs> but I want to just draw out the richness of what you just said so you said uh, how did you word it you said so the snake goes up on the staff, and that's weird because it's snakes that are killing them. Yeah. So God uses what looks like evil mm-hmm. to deal with that very evil. Yeah. And you said that looks like that kind of points us to the cross, doesn't yeah. it? Uh, can you think of? I'm trying not to put words in your mouth here. Feel free to. Can you can you, <laughs> can you think of any kind of like New Testament passages which kind of draw that out? What, other than the John 3 one? Yeah, like, it kind of, this looks like evil, but God is using it for, for, to, to deal with that evil. Um, off the top of my head, no. That's, That's fine, really yeah. <laughs> yeah the, 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 I, I, I was thinking of, um, you know, uh, he, who, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we okay. might become the righteousness of God. Yeah. Jesus is not sinful, but he looks like sin on the cross. Yeah. Um, and we look at him and it heals our sin. Yeah. It's cool. But you got that. Okay. <laughs> um, and then for hope, we're saying it's about uh, repenting sins um, and trusting in God. Um, and then for love, we said it shows God's love and forgiveness, um, a model of how we should forgive as well. The fact that God like, forgives, like we're moaning to him. He's giving us all this, we're moaning, and yet he's still pours through. He's still forgiving us. Like the snakes, when they bite him, they have poison, like in the bodies they are literally dying and then God is still like healing them and forgiving them so it's kind of how we should accept we're forgiven but also forgive others yeah um, and healing as well yeah great top stuff give a big round of applause When I introduced this fourfold way of reading scripture, and it was all a bit complicated and silly at first, wasn't it? And I was using big words. Um, I think it works. I think it's a helpful model for just opening up scripture. Do you, not if you are agreeing with if you're finding yeah. that. You agree. Excellent. I'm pleased to hear that. Um, let's do Deuteronomy, and then we'll have a proper break. Yeah? Okay. Um, 
for the life of me, I could not find what the Hebrew <laughs> of name for Deuteronomy is. Um, I think there's, there's, multiple, there's multiple names that they give it. Uh, Deuteronomy in English uh, just means um, second law, second law, uh, which is an all right description of, of what is actually going on. Uh, so let's, let's pick up the context. Um, picks, Deuteronomy picks up right after the events of Numbers. God's people are standing by the Jordan. They're looking into the promised land. And Moses is going to give them his, his pep talk before they go in. And remember, Moses is not going to live to see the promised land. So these are his parting words to God's people. Um, the older generation have died. The new are ready to inherit um, and Deuteronomy is a fascinating book because uh, in it, Moses looks back to everything that has happened so far in the Bible. And he looks forward to everything that is going to happen. He recounts everything from the Exodus onwards. And he basically prophesies the outline of the rest of the Old Testament. And so Deuteronomy is a really interesting book for learning how to read the Old Testament and to get the, the Old Testament story um, a lot of the big themes, kingship, blessing, curse, exile, are all there in Deuteronomy. Um, essentially, it's a sermon given by Moses. Um, and then there's like the odd bit of narrative here and there. Um, and of, of the three books we're looking at today, I think this is Deuteronomy's got heart in comparison to, to numbers at the very least. Um, because Moses, he, he is giving people law. But he's more concerned with their hearts and how they're going to respond to God. In fact, I think Moses comes across quite fatherly in this text. Um, the style of Deuteronomy is quite repetitive. It will kind of go round and round and round. You'll, you'll read it and you'll think, I've read these laws before somewhere. Um, and you'll read other things and you'll be like, Moses, you've said this three or four times. And I think we tend to think like that because in the West, in the modern West, we kind of like our information to be quite precise. You know, give me the details. Moses isn't interested in communicating knowledge. He wants to shape the hearts of his audience. Um, and so it's a very educational book. There's quite a lot of concern in there for like how families are going to teach the, the law to their children. Uh, and there's instructions to have God's promises like written on the door frames of your house and things like this. Moses wants, wants the word of God to be set before the eyes of God's people um, so that it's in their hearts and in their minds and in their mouth. Content-wise, uh, content there's three main parts um, to, the, to Moses' speech in chapters 1 to 11. Moses gives a summary of Israel's journey out of Egypt highlighting the themes of rebellion and unfaithfulness. He encourages the new generation of Israelites to trust in the Lord. Uh, and he reminds them of God's grace to them. He says some wonderful things like, you know, God didn't save you out of Egypt because he was impressed with you, because you were, you know, mighty. He saved you because of his love for you. It wasn't your righteousness. Sometimes people... Sometimes we can think of the Old Testament as being not about grace, but about God wanting people to, to, to be good and he will reward them accordingly. And there definitely is, is the, the case that God gives blessing for obedience, 
um, and will we'll punish disobedience. But you know what? That's actually the same for Christians, true? The Lord disciplines the son he loves. Um, and Deuteronomy shows us that God, God's dealings with Israel are gracious. He says, it wasn't because of your righteousness that I saved you. Um, were you waving at me to ask a question? Okay. Hi. Um, yeah, so uh, lovely, lovely verses in chapters 1 to 11. Um, and some key, some, key, some key important bits. Um, Moses will give Israel the Ten Commandments again. And then afterwards, he, he will ask them to circumcise their hearts, which is a really key theme in Deuteronomy. We, we will return to it at the end. And uh, let's get a bit graphic for a minute. Let's talk about circumcision. What happens in circumcision? I'm not going to ask anybody to shout out. Um, in circumcision, the, the, the foreskin of, uh, of a male penis is cut off. And the foreskin is the dull, unsensitive, fleshly bit of the gentleman's equipment. Um, and so what does it mean to circumcise your heart? It is to take away the fleshly, unsensitive part of it to expose the more sensitive bit to God. It's a very earthly book, the Bible. <laughs> um, it's a very, very powerful image. Um, and actually, the New Testament will say that that is what, that that was the meaning of what circumcision was always about. And so in the New Testament, circumcision is replaced um, as the marker of what it is to belong to God's people by repentance and baptism. Uh, and by those things, the Holy Spirit circumcises our hearts. That's what Paul says in Colossians 2. Yeah, Colossians 2. And he's really just thinking about Deuteronomy as he says that. Um, circumcise your hearts, O Israel. There's another key uh, bit in this uh, section, which is uh, famously known as the Shema, which is a prayer that Jewish people pray daily, even to this day. And Shema is the Hebrew word for listen. It's also the word for obey. Interestingly, the uh, Hebrew language doesn't have a word for obey. Um, it has just the word listen. Um, and so this, uh, you can find this in chapter 8. My goodness, where's my Bible gone? That's embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> it's in my bag. Um, Shema is in chapter 8, and it says, Listen, O Israel, Shema, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. That is what the book of Deuteronomy is trying to get at. Moses has had 40 years of having to put up with the Israelites. He knows that law, they won't just keep laws. And that God isn't just interested in the outward expression, but God is after a circumcised heart which loves him. We then get into chapters 12 to 26, where Moses gives a reiteration and reinterpretation of the law that Israel received at Mount Sinai. Lots of details about you know, government, social structure, leadership structure, how to worship correctly, social justice, um, and these things. It, it's preparing Israel for life in the promised land. Um, and that's, that's where the title Deuteronomy, Second Law, comes from. And then chapters 27 through to 
33, Moses sets before Israel the consequences of their obedience and their disobedience. If they listen and love the Lord, they will inherit blessing. Blessings upon their land, upon their livestock, upon the fruit of their womb, their families, their communities. If they disobey, then the land and all that is in it will be cursed. The heavens will shut up, there'll be no rain, there'll be famine, and eventually God will hand his people over to pagan empire and they will go into exile. And Moses says, I know what's going to (laughs) happen. You're going to disobey and you're going to go into exile. And then he makes some sweet, sweet promises. He says, and even there in a foreign land, you will call on the Lord and he will come to you and he will restore you and he will bring you back into the land. Moses is prophesying the story of the rest of the Old Testament, um, setting us up for what will come. Moses knows that God has a purpose to outwork through his people, the the promise to bless the nations of the earth through Israel. Um, And and Moses knows that that however, however disobedient Israel will be, God will work his promises nonetheless. Then at the end, Moses blesses Israel. He sings a song about God's faithfulness. He prophesies over each of the tribes. And then he appoints Joshua as his successor, and he finally departs. Uh, he climbs up a mountain. He has a view into the promised land, and then he dies. And then very mysteriously, it says that God buries Moses. I have no idea what that looks like. Um, and then the book closes uh, with Israel mourning Moses and uh, Joshua rallying the troops and Israel being ready to follow Joshua. And then the Torah finishes and we're into the book of Joshua and the conquest of the land. Um, in a second, oh no, let's, let's read Deuteronomy of Faith. Deuteronomy teaches us that in order to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and strength, we actually in fact need new hearts. We need restored souls and we need the strength of God's spirit. Um, The lady sat on the front table down here uh, during the last little break said they didn't stand a chance without God's spirit, did they? And that's basically the, the theme of Deuteronomy, that we need our hearts to be circumcised. And the story of the Old Testament will show that Israel can't, humanity can't by ourselves circumcise our hearts. Only God can by his spirit. Even Moses can't affect that in his people, but he points to one who can. And when Jesus, sorry, when Moses is teaching about blessing and and curses, this language points us towards the one who would become a curse for us in order that we might inherit the blessing. That's the language that Paul picks up in Deuteronomy, uh, in Galatians, sorry, and he's drawing it from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21 says that a man who is hanged on a tree is cursed. And Paul says that Christ on the cross was cursed in order that we might be blessed. And Moses' prophecy about the people going into exile, um, being held captive by pagan empire well christ will suffer under the romans that we might receive his liberation if we read deuteronomy according to hope um, it can help us prepare ourselves for the kingdom of god that is coming 
It reminds us that we're still journeying through this life, that there is still a promised land ahead, that this is not it. And I think that's really important for us living in a very affluent culture where I can just feel so at home. My family are preparing to to leave Canterbury. I've lived in Canterbury for 12 years. I've been in the church 10 years. The church is my family. And it's a lovely place, even though it's in the south. Um, And uh, my wife and I live in a lovely home. And we've just been so blessed. But God is calling me on. And I I believe he's calling me on um, to do what he's made me to do. Um, And so reading Deuteronomy... Um, reading numbers as well actually has really spoken to me about how I'm not settled, I'm not in the promised land yet there's still blessing for me to inherit Um, and that that will mean following the Lord in obedience Deuteronomy reminds us that one day God will wipe away every tear and raise us again with perfect and perishable bodies which will not sin There will come a day in God's kingdom when you will no longer be afflicted by all the things that tempt you. You will no longer be addicted to the things you're addicted to. You will no longer struggle with those sins that beset you. And you will be able to love him and love your neighbour with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Throughout Deuteronomy, there's a a real focus on... um, how God's people are to care for the, the foreigners who come amongst them. Um, and God reminds them that you were a stranger, you were an alien in a foreign land in Egypt, and God saved you so that when the stranger and the alien comes amongst you, you're to look after them. And so these verses can teach us that we were once aliens and strangers to God, and yet he had mercy upon us and gave us wonderful hospitality. And so in turn, we should do that to our neighbour, to the stranger, to the alien amongst us. Um, Now in a second we're going to break into our groups again, have a big break, and uh, I'll give you some more passages for you to to work through. But very quickly I just want to address uh, passages in um, these books of the Bible which uh, are very violent. Let me read you this uh, heartwarming quote by Richard Dawkins from uh, his book The God Delusion the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction jealous and proud of it a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser when Dawkins is writing that he has uh, the books of Numbers Deuteronomy and Joshua in mind because particularly in Deuteronomy the Lord commands his people um, that when they go into the land, they are to destroy the pagan cities that are there. Let me read to you from uh, chapter 7. The Lord says, When the Lord your God gives them, the pagan nations, over to you, and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy. Other passages detail that they were to kill the, the women and the children. Now, hands up. Anybody who has read those passages and been deeply perplexed and disturbed. Splendid. I'm not on my own. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you five... Five reflections from Scripture that can help you 
wrestle with those texts. Like I said earlier on, Scripture is difficult in order to make us wrestle with it. Um, And it challenges us. And what... I think there tends to be two approaches to dealing with these texts. Some approaches try to explain them away. Um, And I don't always know if that's that helpful. I think these texts should challenge us. They should provoke us and make us reflect on how God feels about sin and idolatry. But on the other hand, we, we do need to make sense of them. How is it that this is the same God who teaches us to love our enemies? That's the question. So five theological reflections or reflections drawn from the rest of the Bible. Um, first off, these passages are primarily God speaking to his people. And they're primarily about Israel keeping themselves separate from sin and idolatry. That's the emphasis here. The focus isn't on the lives of the people in the cities. The focus is on God's people violently keeping themselves from sin and idolatry. And God cares about that because he cares about the consequences of his people doing those things. And so the violence that is called for is Israel's violence against temptation. And it has parallels in the New Testament. In chapter 8 of Romans, Paul says, by the Spirit, you are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Theological reflection number two. These nations are wicked. I can't, I've not got the chapter and verse here, but in Deuteronomy once or twice, it mentions that these nations are sacrificing their children to their gods. These nations are doing abominable practices. Theological reflection number three. The big story helpfully frames these passages. So if we look back to Abraham, when God promises Abraham that he and his descendants will have this land, Abraham's like, great, let's get started. And God says, no, not yet. The iniquity of these people is not yet complete. I'm pretty sure that's in Genesis 15. The iniquity of these people is not yet complete, which means that they have not reached a stage where God is totally done with them. Now, I don't really know what that means for their relationship with God, their salvation, all those questions. Scripture doesn't give us any answers. Um, But God, God was aware of where they were at. And so by the time we reach Joshua and the actual destruction of these cities, um, in God's timing, he is, he's allowed them to get to the point where they are so wicked that he's bringing total destruction upon them. If we look ahead into the story, to the book of Joshua, there's a very helpful story of when um, God's people take down the city of Jericho, the spies go in to spy it out, and they come across a lady called Rahab, who is a pagan prostitute. And she puts her trust in the God of Israel. And she's brought out of the city of Jericho and becomes a part of God's people. In fact, she becomes a very important part of the story. She's the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. And so that gives us a framework for understanding how even the enemies of God can come into Israel as aliens, as sojourners, and join Israel. Rahab's conversion, like all conversions, meant a violent death to herself and a resurrection, a new life to God. And I think that's hinted at in the, in the book of Joshua because she, she puts red robes outside of her window to give a signal and uh, 
commentators will sometimes see, you know, is that a kind of picture of sacrifice, understanding, you know, the kind of Levitical stuff that, that you know, blood atones for sin. I wouldn't take a bullet for that, but, you know, um, she's a helpful thing to bear in mind when you read these passages. Theological reflection number four. Not all violence is evil, according to the Bible. Now, let me qualify that. Violence is not a good thing. Throughout the Bible, God unequivocally laments that violence occurs in his creation. Violence was not created. It's not a part of God's creation. It won't be a part of his kingdom when it fully comes. But in the meantime, God will use violence for redemptive purposes. And so, according to the Bible, violence can be redemptive. Why do we believe that as Christians? Well, Christ suffers violence in order to bring about peace. Christians are to put to death their sinful flesh by the Spirit in order to live. And I think, just philosophically, this idea of violence can, under certain circumstances, be redemptive kind of makes sense. I think that even my most stridently secular pacifist friends would say that there was something good going on when Nazi Germany was defeated and the concentration camps were liberated. I think you would be very hard-pressed to find somebody who would say that, you know, nothing good happened in that moment. Um, And I think sometimes... I keep coming back to this verse, the Lord disciplines a son he loves. And I think violence is used in scripture for redemptive loving ends but it's always done qualified you know uh, the lord is um, gracious and merciful slow to anger i think we rightfully as a culture don't like violence because i think there's been so many instances in human history where violence has come about from people who have not been slow to anger so I think about my dad. My dad a, a is a wonderful father, deeply respect him. Uh, but in the Fell family, there is a, there's a temper. <laughs> um, and I remember my dad, you know, disciplining me, not out of being slow to anger, but being quick to anger. And that would incline me away from violence. Um, whereas when, when God instigates violence, like, you know, with him saying to Abraham, the iniquity of these nations is not yet complete. He is slow to anger. Finally, I think Christians can read these passages and think about how in Christ God takes violence onto himself and suffers the execution of a godless rebel. The fate that God is prescribing to these people is the fate that Christ receives on the cross. And I think this can give us confidence That when God orders Israel to slaughter their enemies, we can trust that even in that scenario of God forsakenness, God can and might be working his mercies. Which doesn't mean, I'm I'm not saying, you know, the people in these cities are saved by being killed. I don't know. I wouldn't presume to say that. I'm just saying the cross gives us a framework to understand that even in God forsakenness, God can be working his mercies. It's challenging still. It doesn't take away the challenge of those passages, but it helps us reflect upon that.